You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. One of the great privileges of participating in what God has for us here at University Presbyterian Church are the partnerships that we enjoy with friends and churches and missionaries around the world. And I want to introduce you uh, this morning to one of them because uh, uh, Samuel Petrovsky is here worshiping with us. Would you stand, Samuel, and let us say hello? Now, we... uh Samuel is serving Jesus Christ with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, or IFES, as it's known around the world, in Serbia and Montenegro. And we have partnered with him in raising up a generation of new leaders uh, for Serbia through an internship program that Samuel uh, uh, leads. I want to teach you a little bit of Serbian this morning so that we can say uh, hello properly. Uh, uh, Samuel tells me this is how you say good morning. Dobro utro. Okay, so let's try that. Dobro utro. Welcome and thank you, Samuel, for being here with us. Well, often Jesus heals people by speaking to them and asking them to stand up and walk. But the greater miracle of healing is what he does that allows us to sit down. We're looking at the Gospel of Luke these weeks, and we're noticing that Jesus has a habit of showing up at mealtime. And whenever Jesus shows up at mealtime, he turns the table on our expectations. See, what we expect is that there is a God who is in heaven, but what Jesus surprises us is that that heaven is coming into earth itself. And this is, at every juncture, an invitation to participate in the very life of heaven on the face of this earth and during this time and space that God has given us as long as we live. So in this invitation, we hear our three UPC ministry convictions. I'm going to give you a test, so make sure you get these. Spiritual formation, life-changing community, and lay leadership. Last couple of weeks, we have found Jesus engaging his followers in leadership. They've seen heaven coming into earth as uh, they have taken five loaves and two fish and in the presence of God multiplied uh, these gifts to meet the needs of others. Uh, They have seen that as Jesus sends them out into the homes of others, they have a word of peace that brings blessing to the villages and towns around them. And today now, as our text takes us forward, we see that Jesus is forming us spiritually. Spiritual formation. And we see that spiritual formation begins with an invitation to sit down. So I would uh, invite you to pull out your Bible. And if you are able, uh, please sit uh, with me and uh, read aloud God's word. Well, our text is on page uh, 845 of the Pew Bible. It's a Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Would you open up to Luke 10, 38 through 42? And we'll read this text aloud as God's people. And when we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. So that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. Now, as they went on their way... Jesus entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. 
She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. So she came to him and asked, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just read never will. Lord Jesus, as we are gathered by your invitation this morning, as we are blessed by the presence of your spirit, grant us awareness that you have been our means of adoption into the love of a heavenly father. May we gain that awareness by sitting at your feet and hearing your word. Amen. So two postures and the good portion. First, the two postures. One, Martha is standing. Martha is standing. And there is no reason why we should expect otherwise. Martha, it it seems she may be now the master of the house. She may be a widow. She is sibling to Mary and Lazarus, who doesn't make an appearance in this story. But Martha is the one who initiates this encounter with Jesus. Verse 38, we see that Martha has welcomed Jesus into her home. This is technical language for uh, hospitality. She is standing to serve. And this is just what she should be doing. There is a meal to be had. People are hungry and she will uh, see to its preparation. Now, in the Middle Ages, uh, this text took an interesting turn in the history of interpretation. In the Middle Ages, this text was understood to be a um, vindication of the contemplative life. The contemplative life was elevated over the active life. And so the fact that Mary is act, uh, Martha is active and serving uh, shows that she is less of a follower of Jesus Christ than Mary is. But I don't think that we should read it that way. In fact, the reformers, Martin Luther and John Calvin, offered a corrective. They said to Thomas Aquinas, uh, for example, that you are listening much too much to Aristotle and, and you, are, you are picking up the Greek aversion to work and its preference for that which is pure and invisible and ineffable. And yet, God very much cares about our physical needs. And Martha, in fact, does well to serve. This word that is used in verse 40 for her tasks, as used twice, uh, is the word uh, used for service or for ministry. In Greek, it's diakonia, like deacon. It is universally used with a positive connotation. Jesus has no criticism of Mary, of Martha, because she serves. No, she does well to stand. Her hospitality towards Jesus is an act of generous love in the same way that Mary's act of breaking a vial of perfume over the head of Jesus, as she will do in another gospel later on, is an act of generous love. 
It just so happens that Martha hopes to do it with a meal, so she stands to prepare it. But Martha does have a problem. All is not well inside her soul. She has a problem and she knows it, and she calls for help. This reminds me of a recent little video clip that I saw, which is a trailer for a new show called uh, Portlandia that skewers us up here in the Northwest. It's a parody of Northwest life. And uh, one little episode takes up our fascination with technology, and we find the main character caught in a technology loop. He's got his computer and his uh, iPhone and his iPad and his DVR, and he's frantically, obsessively moving from one device to the next. Got to check my email, got to update Flickr, got to uh, you know sign into Tumblr, got to watch these DVDs and get them back to Netflix, got to cue my DVR, help. He says, and then I got to check my email, top 10 puppy photos, got to update my status, help me. And the woman in the next room in the kitchen hears his cry for help and comes and rescues him. She knows his problem. He's in a technology loop. Martha doesn't know what her problem is. She only knows that she has one. No, it takes Jesus to be able to put his finger precisely on the nature of the matter. And Jesus in verse 41 says, Martha, Martha, <laughs> to snap her out of the loop. You, you are worried and distracted. By many things. Luke summarizes this using a different word in verse 40. Martha was distracted. It's an interesting word. It's a compound word in Greek. It's a combination of the word for pulled or dragged and the word for around. The problem, Martha, is that you're being pulled or dragged around. Your intention is to be in fellowship with Jesus. You have offered him hospitality. And yet your service, your ministry, as valid, as important as it is, your posture of standing, where you are standing, has pulled you away, has dragged you away from the one who is the inspiration for all of this, or else it is nothing. You're being pulled around. A centrifugal force is taking you farther and farther away from that which is your inspiration. And you're caught. Luke hints at this with the way he frames this narrative. Martha seems to be physically distant from Jesus. Luke tells us that she has to come to him in verse 40. So she came to him in order to speak to him. So she's physically remote. Not only physically remote, she's intellectually remote in some way because she seems to be missing Jesus. Notice that she asks him a question, which we can see in the Greek expects a positive answer, an affirmative answer. Uh, Do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work? Uh, Do you not care? She's expecting Jesus to say, you know, yes, I care. She's expecting to see him nodding. To confirm this, she continues on, well, then tell her to help me. But in fact, Jesus is not nodding. He is shaking his head lovingly. 
But he, he is not in agreement with her on this particular point. And so she's not just physically removed. Her understanding of Jesus shows a gap. Not just understanding, but as well, there is a spiritual distance opening up between her and Jesus. For she has to finally ask, do you not care? Now she's beginning to question the heart of her Savior. She knows she has a problem. She doesn't know what the problem is. She thinks, in fact, that she has a a work problem or a relationship problem, or a loneliness problem. See? Uh, Do you not care that my sister, her relationship, has left me to do all the work, her labor, uh, by myself? Jesus, I'm alone. But in all of this, Jesus says, you are being dragged. You are being pulled away, worried and distracted by your tasks. So it's not that she stands that's the problem. It's the way she stands. She's caught in a work loop. And she's left shorthanded, exhausted, and bitter. Martha is standing. There's a second posture in our passage, and that is Mary's posture. Mary, on the other hand, and this is quite a contrast, is sitting. Mary is sitting. And her posture is the posture of radical freedom. She is sitting at the Lord's feet, we read in verse uh, 39. Now, this term, to sit at someone's feet, is a near technical term for an academic relationship in the first century. This is the posture, this sitting position, is the posture that a student or a disciple, by the way, disciple simply means a learner, would take as he sat at the feet of his rabbi or master or lord or teacher. And so Mary is sitting as a learner at the feet of Jesus. This is not just describing the posture of one who has found freedom from life's anxieties. Although for us, for me, frankly, that would be enough. No, there's something far more radical here. This is a posture of great liberation, much more than just psychological liberation. There's a social aspect that's being betrayed here. Commentator N.T. Wright says this, The problem that Martha has with Mary is not just that Martha isn't getting help from Mary. It's that Mary is acting like a man. She's taken the position of a student to a first century male Jewish rabbi. And that is unthinkable. It's unthinkable that Jesus would allow it in the first place. It's unthinkable that Mary would have the chutzpah. To violate such social taboos as to see herself as a disciple of Jesus. To see herself as a rabbi in training. And yet there she sits. Jesus, you can't allow this. What's going on here? The world is turning upside down in the home of Martha at the feet of Jesus. What is it? What is it? about Jesus that gives Mary this countercultural freedom 
to throw off the conforming narrative of peer pressure, of culture shaping her after its own image. And she can resist now as she sits at the feet of Jesus. You may have noticed that uh, a book has recently been published to sort of update and evaluate the groundbreaking work of Betty Friedand, who in 1963 published The Feminine Mystique, which for many women was a paradigm-changing work. The feminine mystique begins in this way, as Mary Friedand describes the malaise of, in particular, white, middle-class, suburban American women. As she writes on page one, the problem lay buried unspoken for many years in the minds of American women. It was a strange stirring, a sense of dissatisfaction, a yearning that women suffered in the middle of the 20th century in the United States. Each suburban wife struggled with it alone as she made the beds, shopped for groceries, matched slipcover material, ate peanut butter sandwiches with her children, Chauffeured Cub Scouts and Brownies lay beside her husband at night. She was afraid to ask even of herself the silent question, is this all? And Mary says, no, not by an infinite long shot is this all. But Mary's answer to Friedan's question would be very different from the solutions that Friedan commends in her book, that women would volunteer more, or that they would uh, take up politics or adopt a career. But Mary might suggest that all of these things might also be uh, alternative forms of enslavement to another conforming cultural narrative. That this would, if it wouldn't send Mary back into the kitchen, might send her into the workroom. And either way, the result would be the same. She would no longer sit at the feet of, of Jesus. The question for Mary is not, what is your task? How do you stand? But where do you sit? And can you sit? Jesus is the one thing that is needed. And it will never be taken away from Mary. We read that she sits at the Lord's feet in verse 39 and listened to what he was saying. What he was saying is a translation of the Greek word logos. She is listening to his word, his logos. It's a powerful word in the scripture. The word of the Lord. God's word has an incalculable power to change lives, to transform us. Robert Service was a Canadian Mountie and wilderness poet. And he writes a fun poem called The Ballad of Salvation Bill. It's rather long, but I just want to call your attention to the end. It's really a story of a man named Bill who is a rugged Arctic outdoorsman who one day, one night in the dark beneath a cool moon, finds a missionary frozen in the ice on the verge of death. And Bill picks him up and 
hauls him the long route back to a cabin, and the two lay holed up in this cabin awaiting rescue, covered by snow. And they watch their provisions begin to dwindle. But as it turns out, Bill has a ferocious addiction to nicotine. He is a smoker. And he, uh, before long, has used up all of his uh, rolling paper. And he moves from his own stock to every magazine, every newspaper, every bit of paper fiber that he can find in this cabin until there's nothing left except the missionary's Bible clung to his chest. He will not give it up even at the end of a double-barreled shotgun. But Bill does not have the heart to pull the trigger in despair, going for a week with those smoke. He takes a glass of strychnine and decides to do an end to himself. And it's at this point that the missionary speaks up. He strikes a deal. He says, see, here's my Bible. Use it as you will. But promise me, you'll read a little as you go along. (laughs) You do? Then take it, brother. Smoke your fill. And Bill says, and so I did. I smoked and smoked from Genesis to Job. And as I smoke, I read each blessed word. While in the shadow of his bunk, I heard him sigh and sob. And then a most peculiar thing occurred. I got to reading more and more, smoking less and less. Till just about the day his heart was broke, says I, here, take it back, me lad, I've had enough, I guess. Your paper makes a mighty rotten smoke. So then and there, with plea and prayer, he wrestled for my soul. And I was racked and ravaged by regrets. But God was good and low. The next day there came the police patrol with paper for a thousand cigarettes. So now I'm called Salvation Bill. I teach the living law and ballyhoo the Bible with the best. And if a guy won't listen, why, I sock him on the jaw and preach the gospel sitting on his chest. I'm not sure if that's really transformation. My wife and I argued about it. It's a good poem, nevertheless. God's Word, the Word of the Lord, has a power to change lives. It is God's Word, which is a feast. Jesus reminds us what Deuteronomy had said, that one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. It is the Word of the Lord that heals a soldier whose slave, a soldier's slave as he dies from a distance. It is the word of the Lord that calls Lazarus, Martha and Mary's brother, back from the dead. It is the word of the Lord that forgives sins, that calls the invalid to rise. It is the word of the Lord that is the bedrock foundation of a life that will withstand the storms and floods of life. It's this word that breaks the cedars of Lebanon, that calms the storms, that fends the weak and lights our path. It is the living word, active, sharper than a two-edged sword, judging the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It is this word, Jesus tells us, that is the very seed of the kingdom of God. Sown in a person's life, it bears the fruit of heaven. Multiplying. But it is not simply... It's not simply listening to God's word and doing what it says. 
that sets us free. That might be the spirituality of Martha, but it is not the spirituality of Mary as she sits in this moment. The good portion. As it turns out, it's not the posture of standing. It's not the posture of sitting that is so relevant to our own spiritual transformation. It is, in fact, the good portion. Well, what is it? As it turns out, there are two meals in this home, two of them, and that's the surprise of the text. Martha thinks she's preparing the only meal that matters. Jesus suggests with a gentle pun that there is another meal far more substantial in their midst. In verse 41, many commentaries follow Jesus closely and think that he's talking about dishes. And you could be forgiven for assuming that that were the case if you were Martha. Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many. And now in Greek, there is no noun that follows that adjective. Many things. She must think dishes. I'm distracted by all the dishes. And Jesus is telling me to simplify. He is kind of a simple man. And it's true that if I just had one dish to serve him, we would all be sitting with Jesus right now. And here I've got all these dishes. She'd be forgiven for thinking that that's what Jesus means. But he goes on. There is need only of one fill in the blank dish or something else thing. There is need of only one thing, Jesus says, and Mary has chosen the better part. Now, this word part gives the pun away because this is a food word. Mary has chosen the better portion, some of our translations give us. Portion sometimes means the portion of a meal. Remember that Joseph in Egypt, when his brothers don't recognize him, serves a meal to his brothers, and he shares with his beloved Benjamin a portion that is five times larger than all the others. This is the word. Mary has chosen the good Portion. See, there are two meals in this house. Mary, Martha. There is the meal that Martha labors over. It's the one that keeps her standing. It's the one that also distracts her and worries her. It's the one that reflects her own service to Jesus. Her own attempt to minister to Jesus to do something, to offer something that might please Jesus, that might express her love, however imperfect, to Jesus. And it's a generous offering, but it's hers. The other meal in the house is not a physical meal. It is clearly a metaphorical meal. It is the kind of meal of which Jesus could say, it will never be taken away. It is the meal which is himself, the one who sits in the home of Mary and Martha. He sits there with them and offers himself the very bread of heaven as their feast. Here we can't help but notice the Eucharistic overtones. We do not come to the Lord's table and say, are you pleased with our labors? Do you like the bread that we baked for you? We come to the Lord's table at Jesus' insistence, knowing Believing that Jesus is all sufficient for us and that the feast is his 
And that as we eat the bread, we enter into union with Jesus because of the presence of the Spirit. And insofar as we are one with Jesus, we are absolutely pleasing to the Father who says, you are my beloved daughter. You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. In order to truly understand the feast, we must be Trinitarian theologians. Few of us are these days anymore. Uh, Christian Smith uh, writes a book called Soul Searching, published by Oxford Press. This is the most extensive and definitive, uh, comprehensive survey ever conducted on youth and spirituality. Thousands of parents and students uh, were engaged in this conversation. And among many things that were discovered, I want to share with you just two. And there's a good news and a bad news. The good news is, although our assumptions about our youth are that they are primarily influenced by their subculture, their peer group, in fact, they are mostly influenced when it comes to spirituality and religion by us, adults, by their parents. That's the good news. The bad news is what they're learning from us. Because as they describe their understanding of God, what they say nearly to a person, Christian Smith describes as moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic. Well, if you're good enough, you go to heaven. Therapeutic. God's goal in life is to make you happy. And deism, he basically stays out of the way unless I get into trouble and need him. That's the creed of our youth today because it's our creed today. There are two spiritualities in this home. One we could consider or call Unitarian spirituality and the other Trinitarian. The Unitarian spirituality assumes that I can have relationship with God if I do what God needs me to do through my own service, through my own works, through my own labors. I hope to pray well enough. I hope to live well enough. I hope to serve generously enough. And if I do, perhaps God will take notice and share his grace with me. And that is a Unitarian spirituality that will leave us in the very same place we find Mary, standing in worry and anxiety and never knowing never knowing if we belong to God. On the other hand, there is a Trinitarian spirituality that although she could not articulate it, Mary is being invited to experience at the feet of Jesus. Mary is not being asked to be like Jesus. She's being asked to believe that Jesus is like her for her own sake. That Jesus is like enough unto her, the Son of God incarnate, so that he could live on her behalf, that he could die on her behalf. So that Jesus Christ could present to his Father a perfect humanity, an obedient humanity, a humanity that prays as it should, that serves as it should. And then that he might send the Holy Spirit that we could participate in our, our vicar, our vicar. You see, Unitarian spirituality is direct between me and God. Trinitarian spirituality is indirect. It's vicarious. For that, we need Jesus. We need Jesus. 
who does what only Jesus can do as the Son of God. I recommend a book to you, James B. Torrance. It's called Worship, Community, and the Triune God of Grace. Interestingly enough, in this book, he reports a lecture he gave in Seattle, and a pastor came to him confessing that for 10 years he had been whipping himself up and his congregation to live out of their, ex- their experience. And this pastor said, I am weary and tired and have come to see that the center is all wrong. No, we feed upon Christ, the bread of life, not our own subjective experience. It's his experience that transforms us, not ours. Elsewhere, Torrance says, Is not the bread which we break our sharing in the body of Christ and the cup which we bless our sharing in the blood of Christ? Our sonship and communion with the Father are not they our sharing by the spirit of adoption in his sonship and communion with the Father? Our intercessions and mission to the world, are they not the gift of participating in the intercessions and mission of the apostle and high priest whom we confess? That's Jesus Our baptism, is it not the gift of participating through water and spirit in the one baptism, Christ's baptism for us in the waters of the Jordan and in the blood upon the cross, which alone washes away our sins? Is this not the meaning of life in the spirit of that important New Testament word koinonia, which can be translated communion, fellowship, sharing, participation? God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We cry, Father, because Jesus is the Son in whom we relate to God. Well, there is, there is no doubt meal, physical meal on this table, but the real banquet is the spiritual meal given to us in the flesh of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Word of God. and He changes our lives as we abide, rest, sit in Him and He in us. I close very quickly with two suggestions. One, about reading the Bible. When you read the Bible, do not read it for advice. Do not look for instructions. Look ever for Jesus. In all of its pages, it testifies of Jesus Christ. He is the one we must find in the Scripture. Secondly, when you do so, read in the presence of the Spirit. I recommend doing what I do, which is never to read the Bible without first praying and asking, Lord, will you speak to me, living Savior Jesus? So, Spirit of God who is here in the room with me as I read, I do not read alone. I read with you, and I read to hear you speaking to my circumstances today. Martha, Martha, I have not come to eat the meal that you prepare for me. The one thing that is needful is that you would come and eat the meal that I prepare for you. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we don't pretend to understand the depths and the riches of our salvation. And yet we have been taught by your word that the one thing we need is the one thing that you have offered us, life in Jesus Christ. Grant that today, whether for the very first time or for what seems like so many times, we might hear afresh your invitation 
to faith in Jesus Christ. He is our righteousness. Transform us as we abide in him through the power of your Holy Spirit. And as we participate in everything that Jesus is. Now and forevermore. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.